Good morning, church. Wow, what a privilege to be in the presence of the creator of the universe. Do you realize that this morning, that he is with you and that he loves you? In fact, if you're watching with someone, uh, maybe it's your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, or, or maybe a neighbor or someone, would you just turn to them and say, God is good? Would you just turn to the person next to you and say, God is good. Hey, and you might be by yourself. Just say it out loud. Confess it. <laughs> and someone might think you're weird. But that's okay. Just confess. God is good. And if you're on Facebook, put the chat, God is good. We are declaring that God is good, and he is worthy of our praise. Amen? He is so worthy of our praise. That is our confession this morning, that we have a good Father, and he's worthy of our praise. God is good. Well, thank you for joining us for worship. I, uh, I want to begin with a, a, a prayer. Uh, this week I had a, a, a dear a woman in our, part of our Rimrock body call me and say, say, Ben, we need to pray. We need to pray. We're in times of struggle. We're in times of battle as a people, as a nation. In the whole world, there's a struggle. And Ephesians says that this life, there is a spiritual battle taking place. And, and the invitation in that battle is how, we, how do we fight? We fight on our knees. We fight by praying. We seek God because we're not able. We are weak. We are prone to wonder. We're prone to uh, leave the God that we love. But, but when we come to our knees, we're reminded of who's going to win the battle, right? God's going to win it for us. We can't win this on our own. We need God. And so I would invite you, if you're able to get on your knees, get on your knees. Let's cry out to God together, and if you can't get on your knees, maybe raise your hands, close your eyes, and let's seek our Father together. Lord, this morning we come to you, and Lord, all your people, as we've gathered this morning to worship you, even though we're not in person, uh, we've, we've decided that the most important thing we can do with this moment is to seek you is to turn our eyes towards you, to listen to your word, to sing and declare your goodness in a world of curse, in a world of pain, in a world of hurt, in a world of fear, in a world of hatred. We declare that, God, you are good, and that you are love, and that you are healer, and you are restorer, and you are making old things and making them new, and broken things and making them whole. And God, you are restoring what the devil has stolen. And so, God, we declare in the name of Jesus that this virus and the fear and the, and the hatred, all that will lose, and that you will win that the cross and the resurrection is greater than anything that the enemy can throw against us. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray for your people, that, God, our hearts would turn towards you. We pray for an awakening in our land, that our nation would turn to you. Lord, we pray for our leaders. We pray for wisdom. We pray for those who have authority in our nation, in our government, in business, in many places. God, we pray for divine wisdom. We pray for courage. We pray for insights and in how to lead in these times. Lord, we pray that as a nation that we would not divide against each other, but that we would turn to you and we would learn to love each other, to honor one another, that we would learn to serve one another, to give as you have given to us. Oh God, have mercy on us. Thank you, God, that though our sin is great, your mercy is more. That, God, your grace has been poured out, and it's available to us today. So, God, do a mighty work. Do a mighty work in our land. Revive us. Awaken us. 
to see your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we uh, gather around the Word of God, I want to uh, just ex- announce to you my excitement that we have a date here at Rimrock for getting together in person. May 31st, <laughs> we are going to go on the hill and pray that the sun is shining like it is this morning, because our plan is to be outside. We're going to be set up inside just in case if there's rain, but, but our plan is to be outside. We, we want to be uh, as safe, and we want to take this virus seriously, and we want everyone to be safe, but, but we believe God has called us to gather uh, to worship. And so uh, May 31st, put that on your calendar. Uh, we're going to be live streaming, so if you are at risk and you can't join us, uh, you can still join us online, and, and that is, is, is very much okay. But I just am so excited, looking forward. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to have a lot more details about that gathering. And so um, be, be watching your email and other ways of communicating. We want, uh, we want to make this um, uh, just a, a special time. It's Pentecost Sunday. Uh, the Holy Spirit is with us. And uh, we can't wait to declare God's glory together in person in the meadow. So we're going through Ecclesiastes, and I, I pray that you're not getting tired of this book. Uh, I, I, I pray that you're not just listening um, to these messages, but that you're actually reading and, and digging into the Word yourself. Uh, the Spirit of God is in you, and one of the things the Spirit of God does is He illuminates. He brings to light the truth of God's Word and makes it a, a reality, a powerful reality that will change your life. It's changed mine, and I know it's changing so many of your lives, and so many people in this world are being changed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so listen to this, this message, but go deeper. Seek God. Ask God to reveal His truth to you through His Word. And, and as we go through Ecclesiastes, we begin to discover that a surface reading um, is not enough. <laughs> this book has so many profound lessons for, for understanding who God is and what this life is all about because uh, Solomon tried to pursue life without God. He pursued pleasure. He pursued all these other things, money, fame, uh, wisdom, and knowledge, but all of that without God, and he found that it was a chasing of the wind. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says life is like vapor, like smoke. And you try to grasp it, you control it, and you can't control it. And so the true meaning of life, he finds, is found in God. (laughs) Solomon discovered that. I am discovering that. And I pray that you are discovering that. That the things that you trust are are not going to last. But God is trustworthy. If you hold on to God... It changes everything. And that's what Solomon's message is for us, is that God gives gifts. That God is the great gift giver. And when we fear God, and we give our hearts to God, then life becomes a joy. And we can, we can experience all the good gifts that he gives. And so we're in chapter 7 this morning. And, and I'm not going to read the whole, whole chapter, but we're going to kind of work our way through. And I just want to remind you in, in Ecclesiastes that that this book is, is wisdom literature. And so we don't read it the same way we do other parts of the Bible. So if I'm in Deuteronomy or I'm in the book of Romans, I read that very differently. Um, but Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. And so this is a, a, a poetic, there's metaphor, uh, there's proverbs, and each of these things have, have a different way uh, that we need to read it and understand it. We need to interpret, do our hermeneutics in a correct way, in a right way. And so going through chapter 7, we're going to see a lot of complexity here. 
And so uh, I, I, I read through this <laughs> a few weeks ago, and as I read through it, I thought, oh boy, how am I going to preach this? <laughs> this is, this is, uh, is going to be hard. But as I spent time and I began to understand uh, God's heart and what Solomon was trying to, it came alive to me. And I can't wait to share with what I discovered in this chapter. But we're going to kind of jump around in chapter 7 a little bit because I, I want you to understand uh, what God is, I think, revealing to us in this chapter. So be careful about just the surface reading because there's a lot of symbolism. There's metaphor, there's poetic writing, and there's proverbs, which are statements that help us understand principles of God's wisdom for life. And so when you turn to your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're going to start in chapter 15 and go through ch verse 29. Chapter 7, verse, verses 15 through verses 29. And this is what Solomon says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. Now, that word futility is actually the word habel, which means vapor or like smoke. And so basically Solomon's saying in this, in this life that is so temporary, this life that I can't grasp and I can't understand in all of its complexity. Remember in the context he's just talked about, who knows? <laughs> like we can't understand every aspect of this life. We can't have all of our questions answered. But God knows, right? And then this is what he says. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Solomon's grappling with a big question here. <laughs> and I think every person who's ever lived long enough to, to experience life will ask this question at some point. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people, right? This life is not just. It doesn't seem right. So many times the people we think should be rewarded aren't. And the people... Um, who don't deserve a thing, seem to prosper, right? And Solomon's wrestling with this. This is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't ignore the hard questions. In fact, this issue is brought up by almost every prophet <laughs> in the Scripture, right? They ask, God, why are your people suffering and the bad people, the people who are so wicked, seem to be to prosper? There's actually something very important here that Solomon wants us to understand. And remember... Part of Ecclesiastes' uh, message is an apologetic. Uh, Solomon has tried to live without God, and he's come to a point in his life where he's realized that was totally worthless, that it was so foolish of him to do anything apart from God. He's called, he calls it a chasing after the wind. And he's realizing that God is worthy of his worship and worthy to be feared and worthy to, uh, to seek and to understand what the meaning of life. And so uh, Ecclesiastes is an apologetic. It's an apologetic for not only the existence of God, but the goodness and the wisdom of God for this life. And so this book we need to understand is, is, is highlighting some of the, the deepest questions. And so this question that we have of, of justice and injustice in our world, why is life not fair? Or why does it seem to go in ways that, that don't seem right? And particularly if God is good, we're just saying that, right? And that's something skeptics bring up all the time. Why, if God is so good, why is there so much pain and suffering and evil in this world? One of the things Solomon highlights in this apologetic is that 
life is more complicated than we can understand. It's more difficult for us to see the whole picture, right? But there's something very important about this question. Um, I think it's really important to understand that God is the creator of everything, and his purpose, his ways are higher than our ways. And Solomon has just highlighted that in the first part of chapter 7. So if you read the first part of chapter 7, you see that we can't understand every aspect. I think of, uh, of uh, my mother-in-law who uh, every so often will send us a, a book in the mail. And this book is full of pictures and things that um, my wife's family and our family have been part of over the past year. And she's put all this effort into putting this beautiful picture book uh, together. And it's fun to go back and look and remember all those memories. Now, that book didn't just happen. That took intentionality. That took effort. It took, uh, it took art artistry to come together and to produce something that could be read and, and touched and experienced. And I think about this world. So much of what we see and look around is evidence of God, right? We see his creative power. But I think the greatest evidence of God is, is you and me, people. We are living, um, living examples of our creator that he has made us unique and different. We reflect something that transcends something that could just happen or accidentally come together. And I think one of the, the greatest uh, discoveries has been this idea of DNA, that each human being is really like a, a picture book, a book that has been put together in all of its intricacy and beauty and, and its special, unique ways. And, and, and just like that book that my mother-in-law sends to us uh, with pictures, it didn't just happen. It wasn't an accident. It didn't just randomly come together. It was intentionally put together and gifted. And in the same way, you were intentionally put together and gifted. And the DNA tells a story. It tells a story of who you are. And it's God's gift to this world that he created you, that he made you unique and special. And one of the unique and special things about you and about me and about every person who ever breathes a breath in this world is that we have a deep longing for justice. We want to know what's right. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting when you go to a playground and you listen to the kids play, without fail you will hear them say, it's not fair. <laughs> Where does that come from? <laughs> Where does that longing for justice come from? Well, I think that's a pointer to God. And that's what Solomon is pointing out in this question of, of why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked prosper? Is there's this longing for justice. We want the world to be right. And I think that points to God. Now, I, I was thinking this morning, I've never seen uh, a group of beavers picketing in front of the beaver dam saying, we're not paid enough, <laughs> right? You don't see beavers picketing, but people want justice. They want what's right, right? And that's why we have all this incredible complexity of being human, and it shows up in our DNA, and it shows up in, in who we are, and that's a reflection of God. It's a reflection of being made in the image of God. So here's Solomon's bigger point, because he's taken us somewhere. He's taken us somewhere. And I'm going to jump around a little bit. And so instead of going right into uh, uh, verse uh, 16, I want to jump down to verse 20. So would you read with me verses 20 and 21? 
And this is what he says. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So Solomon is making a really profound, important point here. Remember, one of the, the great themes of Ecclesiastes is the reality of the curse. This world is cursed. There's something terribly wrong with this world. It's not the way it should be. And part of that curse is in the creation around us, but, but part of that curse is in us. And that's what Solomon is, is saying, is that every single human being, that our, our, our very DNA has been corrupted, that something is wrong in the story of, of who we are in our lives. And, and he points that out, that we, we, we're incapable of doing the good that we know we should do. <laughs> and, and we sin. We do things that are offensive to other people and ultimately offensive to God. He also says, Do not take seriously all words that are spoken, so you will not hear your servant cursing you. And this is what I love about wisdom literature, is he, he, he paints this picture of, of listening or eavesdropping about two uh, employees or servants talking about you. And he says, you know, that's one of the most painful things we can experience is thinking, man, people are saying bad things about me, right? Or about you. And so we don't like that. But then verse 22, for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. <laughs> and so, so Solomon says, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair that they're saying those things about me. But then he, he turns the, the dagger in his and says, wait a minute, haven't you also done those kind of things? Haven't you also said things against people that aren't fair, that aren't right? And so here's what Solomon's point is. We are all affected by the curse. And it's not just what's happened to us, but we have also hurt others ourselves. We have sinned. We have done wrong as well. So here, here's the question. Here's the issue. We can look at all the injustice around us. The wicked are prospering. The good are suffering. Why? Why is it like this? But here's what Solomon is saying. Is there anyone who is truly good? Is there any human being who is all good? <laughs> or is there any tr human being who is truly all bad either? You see, this is complex. We as created beings were created by God in his image, in his presence to, to live in goodness, but we've been corrupted. The curse is real. It's affected us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul wrote thousands of years later as he understood the reality of the curse and how it's affected us. So what do we do when we realize that we've all been affected, that all of us have sinned, that we are not all good or all bad? <laughs> There's this complexity. And so let's go back up to verse 16 because we need to understand where Solomon's going, that there's no one righteous. We have all sinned, but he's going to paint a very interesting picture of this reality of, of, of good and evil in all of us, this wrestling match of, of the curse in our hearts, right? This is what he says in verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. All right. First time I read this, I was confused. <laughs> I was like, what in the world? What's he trying to say? 
But as I began to dig and understood this, I, I see he's making a very pro profound point. We have to understand verse 20 and 21. No one is righteous. And so when he's talking about being excessively righteous or overly righteous or overly wise or overly wicked, I think he's, he's, he's getting our attention with something. And so let's not miss this because in the Bible, you cannot be overly righteous. <laughs> in fact, in the Bible, there's only one or two ways. Either you are righteous or you're unrighteous. Either you are with God or you're against God. It's very black and white. There's no middle ground with God. You see that over and over from Genesis to Revelation. There is no middle ground. It's either you are or you're not. I, I think a good example of this is, is uh, when my wife got pregnant, she was pregnant. <laughs> and so if you're a woman, if either you are pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no such thing as in between, right? You can't be halfway pregnant or partially pregnant, you're pregnant or you're not, right? And I think that's true with the Bible. What God has revealed is either you are with God in his righteousness, or you are against God. There is no middle ground with God. It's very clear. It's black and white. But the reality as human beings, as we've already talked about, is, is, is we are not fully righteous or fully unrighteous, right? And so what is Solomon saying? I think he's saying there is a way where we can try to be self-righteous or self-moral, where we can put on an appearance of righteousness, or we can strive or work towards a form of righteousness, or we could try really hard to be evil and wicked. And there's a lot of people who do that too, right? And so he's saying both of these ways are erroneous ways. Both of these ways are dangerous ways. I think he's talking about self-righteousness, and he's talking about self-wickedness. Jesus told a story that I think profoundly helps us understand this. Jesus in Luke 15 told three stories, actually, about this. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And I think we've misread that lost son uh, parable for, for a long time. I'm thankful for men like Timothy Keller who, who uh, wrote a book called The Prodigal God who really, I think, got to the heart of Jesus' message that this isn't really just about the younger son because Jesus told this story to Pharisees <laughs> and Jesus was speaking to Pharisees who were overly righteous, right? They were doing all these things, right, to say, look at us. We're better than other people. We're not like those other people. And so Jesus told this story about a father who had two sons, and, and the younger son one day decided, you know what? I'm not going to work for my dad anymore. I'm going to go do my own thing. And so he takes off, and he says, dad, give me all that my inheritance, everything that you owe me, I'm going to take, and I'm going to do life my own way. I'm going to run away. I'm going somewhere else where I'm not under your rules and I'm not going to do your way of living. I'm going to do my own way, right? And so he gets his inheritance and he takes off to a far country. He lives scandalously, wildly. He does all the things that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes. He lives for self, for pleasure. And he gets to the end of himself and he realizes that he's been a fool. And it's in his hunger and his desperation. He says, I'm going back home, and I'm going to try to become a servant, and I'm just going to ask for the scraps off my father's table. But as he's coming, his father's been waiting for him, <laughs> longing for him, loving him, and he sees him coming, and he runs to that son, 
And the son can't even get through his, his I'm sorry speech because the father embraces him and welcomes him and throws a party for him. <laughs> and the son is welcomed back into the family. And then the older son is angry, right? Because he's saying, look, I've done all the right things. I've been the good son. I've been responsible. I've been the righteous one, right? And then the father, as the party is going on, the older son is pouting, and the father pursues that son too. And so just as he ran to the younger son, he runs to the older son and says, come, <laughs> come celebrate with me. Come share my joy, because everything I have is yours, right? And it's the older son that we don't know how that story ends, right? And so the danger, I think, that Solomon is talking about here is really the danger of the older son and the younger son. Because both sons miss something. They missed the reality that the father loved them, that the father was their provider, that the father was their joy. <laughs> and that's what Solomon has been saying in all of Ecclesiastes is, is the real joy is God himself. It's not the money. It's not the pleasure. It's not the food. All those things have their place. Those are gifts. But it's God himself who gives life, gives joy, who gives peace, who gives fulfillment and satisfaction. And both sons missed it. And that is what I think Solomon is saying here is if you pursue yourself, either in righteousness or in wickedness, either way, you miss it. You miss God's gift to you. You miss what God has for you. He says to his sons, everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. I am the source of joy and life, and everything you're longing for is found in me. And both sons missed it. And we can miss it too. We can be overly religious, and we can try to do righteousness on our own, and we will miss it. Isaiah the prophet said, all our righteous, all our good deeds are but filthy rags. It's not enough. And that's what Solomon is saying. Every person on this planet has been affected by the curse. We are not capable of righteousness on our own. And if we pursue wickedness, we will miss it as well. It was only when the younger son repented and came back to the father that he experienced the joy of the, wet, of the feast, right? And so either way, we can miss it. And here is Solomon's primary point, right? He's saying it's good when one fears God, when one comes to the Father. When you come to the Father, then it's not about being righteous or wicked. All of that complexity is, is it's satisfied. It's okay. You can hold loosely the fact that, that there's parts of your DNA and part of who you are and part of your experience that is, is good and righteous and, and, and God is doing good things in your life. He's, he's doing good things, but there's also a part of you that's been affected by the curse that's evil and wicked, right? It's in both of us, but when we look to the Father and when we look to God, we don't have to strive we don't have to worry. We don't have to struggle. Because when we fear God, it's a gift from Him. He takes care of us. Everything He has is ours. And so here, as we continue to walk through Ecclesiastes, we begin to see that true righteousness can only 
come from God. And so Solomon's question then is, how, how do we live then? If, if life isn't about gain, and it's really a gift, how should we live? And so this is the invitation, and the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes is really about how do you live in wisdom? Because one of God's greatest gifts is wisdom. And so if we understand that life comes from God, and we understand that the fear of God is, is the most important thing that we can ever have, ever experience in this life, then the question is, how do we live then? <laughs> what, what's the meaning and purpose of life knowing that life is a gift from God. And that is where this issue of wisdom comes in. And so in verse 19, he says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers in a city. And so Solomon is saying that the, the shift is that when you understand the gift of God, then you can begin to live within the wisdom of God, of what he gives and how we live. In verse 23, he says, I tested all this with wisdom. I said, I will be wise. So he, he's tested that question of evil and good and, 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 and realizing that you can't be self-righteous and you can't be wicked. You can't turn from God. That we have to come to God and when we receive his gift, we receive this idea of wisdom, right? But it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? And so Solomon's realizing man, I can't, I can't figure this out on my own. Where am I going to find this kind of wisdom, right? How can I discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom in an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains, who is uh, one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, and the sinner will be captured by her. Now, I want to pause here, because <laughs> you can read that, and you can think, why is he talking about a woman now? Remember, this is wisdom literature. This is, this is a form of writing that, that Solomon is, is a master at. If you go to Proverbs, Song of Solomons, you see the same language. And in Proverbs in particular, there's a, there's a, there's a parallel passage, and, and Solomon helps personify wisdom, and he, and he calls wisdom a woman but he also calls folly a woman. So he, he personifies it. It's a, it's a literary tool to help us grasp a, a, a mysterious truth, but make it real, to help us understand and make it tangible. So he, he personifies it. He paints woman, a woman as wisdom and as folly in Proverbs. And I think he's doing that here too. He's helping us understand that we have a choice. Either we will receive the gift from God and we will walk in his wisdom, or we will say no to God and we will walk in foolishness. And if we walk in foolishness, he says, it's like a trap. It's like a snare. It's like a, a person who grabs you and won't let go of you. And so he uses this personification of a woman to say, be careful. Because if folly grabs you, it's very hard to get out of its grasp, right? And so... Here's the issue. If life is not about gain, but it's a gift, this is what Dave Gibson says, you do not find meaning in this life simply by finding a partner or having kids or being rich. And so it's not about gain. You can have those things. You find meaning when you realize that God has given you life in this world. And any of those things, a partner, kids, wealth, material possessions, are a gift to enjoy. And so here's where wisdom and folly come in. How will you enjoy those gifts, right? So once you understand that life is a gift, 
And everything God gives is a gift. So there's a lot of things to enjoy in this life. How will you walk in that? Because folly is always there, right? In Proverbs, Solomon says, it's like a woman calling your name, right? And so it's like folly is calling and wisdom is calling. Who are you going to listen to? And so this is where uh, Solomon begins to help us understand the rest of Ecclesiastes, this life of wisdom. In the New Testament, a great parallel to the, the book of Ecclesiastes is the book of James. <laughs> it, it, there's so many themes in James that, that parallel the same message. And it's that same idea of how do you live wisely with God and his spirit, right? Proverbs chapter 3 uh, verse 13 says this, Blessed are those who find wisdom. Those who gain understanding, for she, again, he's personifying wisdom, she, I'm sorry, I lost my place, is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold fast to her will be blessed. <laughs> And isn't that what we're after? Isn't that what we want? We want to live a full life, a life of blessing, a life of abundance, a life where we experience God's blessing and we enjoy all the gifts, family and, and your workplace and, and all the, the, the possessions that God does give you. Those are all meant to be enjoyed, the food that he gives you. But how are we going to live that way? Through wisdom. And wisdom is a gift from God. So beware of folly. Beware of the danger of folly and listen to the voice of wisdom. Verse 27, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an expla explanation, which I am still seeking, but I have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God makes men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Another passage where we can wonder, what in the world is Solomon talking about here, right? Maybe Solomon is just saying, man, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Maybe he's just saying, <laughs> my experience with women is bad, right? I don't think that's what he's saying here, but... Um, I think there's a deeper meaning here that is really profound. I think Solomon is going back to verse 20 and saying, there's no one righteous. All have sinned. Men and women. Every person has fallen short of God's glory. Every person cannot arrive to wisdom on their own. They can't understand the meaning of life on their own. We need God to reveal to us. It's interesting. I think this is almost prophetic because I think the Holy Spirit is inspiring Solomon here because he says, if only there was one righteous man. And we know that God has revealed one righteous man, and his name is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the only man who's ever lived on this planet who fully lived out in the righteousness of God, who fully lived out wisdom, who, who revealed to us the full measure of what it means to be human. Jesus is fully human, and he's fully God, and he reveals the righteousness and the purpose and the meaning of life <laughs> in every way. 
And so it's in Jesus Christ that we find our righteousness. And I think Solomon, he didn't understand this. But I think by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying there, there is a righteous man out there somewhere, sometime, sometime in history, and it's Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to point your attention to Jesus, because that's why he came. He came to give us what we could not get on our own, what we could not gain. I can't work hard enough to be righteous. And I've done a lot of wicked things, and every person has. And we need God's forgiveness, just like that younger son. And we need to receive the embrace of the Father. And Jesus revealed to us the Father. <laughs> he helps us see that the Father is good. That he's not standing there with a stick waiting for us to come home to beat us. No, he's waiting us for us to come home so he can embrace us. You see, Jesus is the righteous one. And he makes us righteous because he died on the cross and that innocent blood was shed so that we could be free. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And we're going to sing a song here. And I want to, I want, as they're preparing to sing this, I want to read these words because there was a man named Robert Robinson who uh, was doing a lot of wicked, evil things. <laughs> and he went one day to church to make fun of the preacher and uh, so he sat in the back with some friends, and he was making fun of the preacher, laughing at him, mocking him. And the preacher, who, whose name was uh, Whitfield, <laughs> preached this message that Jesus told to the Pharisees. He said, you are a brood of vipers. Talking about people who would be overly righteous or overly wicked. And he said, the wrath of God is going to be revealed. And, and God got a hold of that young man's heart, and it was years later, but he began to see that he was sinful and that he needed a Savior and he turned to Christ. And he wrote a song called, O Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And we're going to sing that together, but I want to read these words. Think about this. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming grace. Here I am. I raise my Ebenezer. Here, there, by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. So just like that older son, younger son, will we come home? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, the day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in the blood washed linen. How I'll sing thy wondrous grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.